fellow true crime fans. This is the interview I have been waiting for. One that melds two of the things I am completely obsessed with. Investigation and conversation. Welcome to episode 105 of This Shit Works, a podcast dedicated to all things networking, relationship building, and business development. I am your host, Julie Brown, and today I am joined by Michael Reddington, a former professional investigator and a certified forensic interviewer to discuss how we can unlock hidden value in every conversation. This episode is sponsored by Nickerson, a full-service branding, marketing, PR and communications agency with team members in Boston, Los Angeles, Miami, and New York City. Visit them at nickersoncos.com. Welcome to This Shit Works, your weekly no-nonsense guide to networking your way to more friends, more adventures, and way more success with your host, Julie Brown. Here we go. In the years that Michael was a professional investigator, he observed how people acted before, during the commission of, and after committing crimes. During this time, he began studying non-confrontational interview and interrogation techniques. These techniques worked so well that he went on to achieve his certified forensic interviewer designation. Michael now takes what he learned in the interrogation room to help business professionals improve the outcome of every conversation they have. Michael believes there is hidden value in every conversation that often the truth is hidden in plain sight, but we miss it because we don't understand the value of the clues that people display in every conversation. This is why Michael created what he calls the Disciplined Listening method, and I cannot wait to jump right in. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Julie. I really appreciate you having me. So I do a lot of research on my guests. So I've watched some of your presentations and read a lot on you. And I've heard you say that the best leaders and best interrogators capitalize on two core skills, those two core skills being vision and influence. Can you explain what you mean by that? Sure. And thank you for doing your due diligence slash investigation slash stalking your guest, whatever it is. Yes, that, that, a little that bit of stalking. <laughs> I'd be a real good internet stalker. <laughs> uh, but with vision and influence, it comes down to really two things. We'll do, we'll do the obviously two things. But when I think about vision specifically, number one, it's getting beyond just the short-term tactical goal of the conversation. So all too often, if we go into the conversation and we're thinking about just what we're trying to achieve now, okay, that might work. But if we're not really paying attention to how this conversation can help us achieve our long-term strategic goals, how can we move a relationship, an objective, a project, an opportunity forward, then we're not really applying that vision. It's taking the blinders off and really elevating our mind's eye looking down the road as we plan on engaging in our conversations and then influence because in, I just had this conversation with the client this morning when we think about it leaders and interrogators have more in common than they might like to realize okay. you know, anybody that's seen at least one episode of one law enforcement television show picked the billion that we've had mm -hmm. in, in my lifetime is familiar with the Miranda warning you know you've, you have the right to remain silent anything you say can and will be held against you often as leaders we don't stop to realize that our audiences have been Mirandized as well 
because a lifetime of working for other people has taught them that I also have the right to remain silent because anything I say might be used against me at any point in time. And I don't want that to happen either. So when we talk about influence, yes, the ability to encourage people, specifically from a communication standpoint, to encourage people to share sensitive information in vulnerable circumstances, potentially in the face of consequences. So if we want somebody to say or do something that's not initially their idea, that process of influence really becomes important. And as all the listeners and really any level of leadership would know, and we can't do everything in the day, you know, we really have to trust other people and empower other people and influence other people to take the actions necessary to be successful. Do you think that we should have a vision or a desired outcome for every conversation we have? Like the high value think? conversations, the okay. high value conversations. Yeah. Um, I mean, if, if you and I were just to meet socially, we probably don't need to have a big strategic goal for that conversation other than right. to catch up socially. And yeah. if I'm back home visiting with family or catching up with friends, or even here, you know, going out to dinner with a client tonight, you know, that, I mean, that's, that's a social occasion, mm-hmm. but for our high value conversations and people can choose what's high value to them. Sure. Is it business development? Is it a leadership conversation? Is it an important conversation with the family? But if, if we're participating in a high value conversation, then yes, having goals for that conver- those conversations are critical is how, do, how else do we know if we're on course or off course? Mm-hmm. Sure. A conversation might feel good, but might take us in a completely unhelpful direction unless we have the goal in place to really check where we're going and how we're doing. I read in your materials, and I thought this was amazing, I, and I hadn't thought about it before. I read in your materials that we need to take responsibility for how our audience, even if that is an audience of one, um, which most conversations are, mm-hmm. how our audience experiences our communication, the way we communicate. How, how do we think about that? I appreciate you asking. Thank you. I honestly feel like one of the biggest advantages, potentially unfair advantages that myself and my former teammates had is we were required to talk to people that wanted nothing to do with us. Mm-hmm. So, and it's not just the suspects. So for us, we really had to understand going in that A, those are the facts and B, instead of resisting that or ignoring it, how do we use it to our advantage? So one of the questions that I learned to ask myself from a strategic preparation perspective wasn't what should I say to get Julie to change her mind or what should I say to get Julie to say this or do that? The question I really needed to ask was, what does Julie need to experience before choosing to change her mind, before choosing to share this information, before choosing to do something different? It's all about what you need to experience. And I mean, number one, especially if it's at all a vulnerable situation, people need to have the opportunity to save face protect their self-image, and avoid feeling embarrassed or judged. That is paramount. They also need to really have the opportunity as they're lining up whatever we're asking them to consider, to change, to do within their self-image. And it might take time to internalize that. So I can literally begin to think, how many conversations might this take? Where should those conversations happen? What should I say? What order should I say it in? What examples should I use? Am I the right person to lead this conversation or should somebody else potentially do it? Because the bottom line is if somebody else has information and we need it, we're not in control of that conversation. They are. If somebody else needs to, if if we want somebody else to change their behavior, 
we're not in control of this conversation. They are. They're going to determine when it's acceptable to share information or change their behavior. So it really is all about creating the communication experience where they can feel like they at least have some of the idea ownership. They can save face and move forward in that change in direction and really commit to it as opposed to feeling forced to comply. How do you, I guess maybe this comes with that certified investigative forensic interviewer training that you went through. I, maybe I should have asked this question first. What is a certified forensic interviewer? I guess I should have asked that first. No, you can ask questions in whatever order you want. It's all good. It's your show. Your job is to ask. My job is to answer. The order don't matter. Um, a certified forensic interviewer would be like a, a CPA. So it's a designation. It's a designation of expertise in the field of interview and interrogation. So it's not necessarily a job within itself. Okay. So there, somebody has to meet the qualifications to take the exam. Then they have to obviously study for and pass the exam. And then they have to maintain the re-education requirements after the exam. Yeah. Um, I probably need to come up with a new analogy, metaphor, whatever it is. I'm an English dropout. Um, but I like to say a certified forensic interviewer or somebody who should be able to be blindfolded, dropped out of a truck, and wherever they land, be able to conduct a morally, legally, and ethically successful interview that's predicated on getting the truth. So it really is all about embracing the totality of the human experience and having a full toolbox of communication techniques in order to connect with people, establish often unexpected bonds, and then use those bonds to lead to obtaining the truth. Can you only get this if you were an investigator? Is this oh, is it just something for people who were investigators? Uh, technically, yes. There's, I mean, there's always, I shouldn't say always, but there's often additional consideration. So please don't quote me on this. It's okay. been a while. It might've changed just a little bit. Um, the designation is run by the International Association of Interviewers. And if they have updated their prerequisites at all. I'm not aware of it off the top of my head, but essentially the prerequisites are, and I don't remember the number of years, but X amount of years of investigative experience and a college degree. If somebody doesn't have a college degree, then they just need more years of, okay. of investigative experience to balance that out. Now, the investigative experience piece can be open to a bit of interpretation. I mean, the integrity of the program is important, but if somebody has been in a human resources for 10 years, Somebody might not think of a human resources professional as an investigator, but I'm willing to bet most human resource professionals have done a fair amount of investigating right. at some point in their career. So that would almost certainly qualify. So there's there's different ways to look at what does it mean to be in the world of investigations. So I want to talk about the disciplined listening method. This is something you created out of all of your experience being an investigator and then having the certified forensic interviewer designation. So what is the disciplined listening method? Thank you for asking. The disciplined listening method is a communication framework that puts communicators in the position to maximize the value in all of their high value conversations, as we talked about before, while encouraging their audience to save face and protect their self-image. So when my investigation career was advancing, I'd be, on the private sector side, I began spending more and more time with the executives who ran the company. Mm -hmm. in answering their questions on how to help them navigate their leadership conversations, business negotiations, business development conversations, mm -hmm. hiring interviews, and so forth. 
And that really lit the fuse for me to dive into the world of business communication research and best practices. So the discipline listening method is the result of integrating the non-confrontational interview and interrogation best practices with research and best practices from across the spectrum of business communication that resulted in seven core behaviors that, that disciplined be, listeners yeah. consistently exhibit in their high value conversations. So that was going to be my next question is the, uh, the seven core behaviors of it. Can we go over yes, those? We most certainly can. So the first two would be pre-conversation behaviors. The first one is, and we kind of touched on this earlier, understand how any conversation can get us closer to achieving not just our short-term goals, but our long-term goals as well. So essentially going into any conversation, we will exhibit the amount of focus, attention, and effort we believe is necessary based on the expectations we carry into the conversation. So if we have lower expectations, lower effort and attention, higher expectations, it's pretty easy okay. to do the math. So if we can go into these high value conversations and really elevate our mind's eye, so now we're focusing not just on the, okay, I've got to get through this right now, but what are the long-term benefits? Now we're more likely to use that vision that we talked about earlier, have more effort, have more attention, be more in tuned and really find what we like to call that hidden value. It's not obvious on the surface, but because we have our goals in mind, we can start to pull out some of these threads from this conversation and tie them together to create a new line to success. Okay. The second behavior is leveraging our perceived weaknesses to create our communication strategies instead of our perceived strengths. All too often, we tend to overvalue our perceived strengths. Mm -hmm. They tend to reinforce our biases, our perceptions, our expectations, our preconceived notions. And really, this was something that became crystal clear to me, probably about 35,000 feet over Indianapolis, give or take. I was flying <laughs> from Chicago to Cincinnati to resolve an investigation. Thankfully, I ended up resolving an investigation into several stolen firearms. And it was a situation where some federal investigators just accidentally discovered they were missing and in their early attempts met only resistance and did not get the truth. Some local police detectives weren't able to get the truth. So I think it was eight or nine weeks later, I ended up going in as kind of a Hail Mary to try to put this thing together. And so I was literally on an airplane taking notes on the back of those Coca-Cola napkins. We all know way too well. Yeah. And it just dawned on me that the people I had to interview had no good reason to tell me the truth. No, like there was no good reason for anyone to be honest with me at this point in the investigation. And it honestly made me laugh. And I thought, you know what? I can use that. So instead of sitting there and thinking, okay, why should these people tell me the truth? I literally flipped the script and started asking myself, okay, well, why shouldn't they? If they don't have any good reason, what are the bad reasons? Why shouldn't they tell me the truth? And I literally wrote them down. And then I thought to myself, okay, well, why haven't they told the truth already? Let me make some educated guesses here. And then I wrote all those down. And then to tie back to a question you asked earlier, once I had answered why shouldn't they and why haven't they already... Then I literally looked at that and thought to myself, okay, what do they need to experience before they choose to tell me the truth? And I literally built my whole strategy for that investigation, not off the reasons why I think they should tell me of all people the truth, mm -hmm. but why shouldn't they? Let's, let's approach this from their perspective. Mm -hmm. It helped me compartmentalize my biases. 
It helped me get much closer to their shoes, dialed up my empathy. And thankfully, the next day, I was able to get a confession from the person who stole both guns, along with turn-by-turn directions and name and telephone number to the person he sold one of the guns to. And so it's a it's a preparation process that I've been evolving. But really, it, my preparation process for high-value conversations revolves around those three questions. I'll pause there before I get into the conversation yeah. behaviors, but I, I don't want to keep rolling on. No, it. no, I was just, I was trying to think of a question because I had a question. It was more like how, what, why haven't they told you the truth? I was, that's what I was, I was just curious. Like, why haven't yeah. they told you the truth? Like, how did you get them to tell, how did you figure out their why? Like, yeah. So, so for me, part of it is just really, it's embracing the universality of the human experience. Mm -hmm. So I have to go talk to five people who I've never met before, and I'm assuming I'll never see again. Yeah. But as human beings, the amount of overlapping experiences we have is substantial. Like, mm -hmm. we all have our unique traits and experiences, but being a human being is a really, really, really common experience <laughs> around the world. So for me, it just started there with, okay, well, if I'm one of these five people and I took the guns, why didn't I tell the truth already? Well, let's just start with common sense. I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want people to know I'm a thief. I've got a safe face. I've got to protect my self-image. I, I was probably put on the defensive by the techniques that were used before. So I literally just brainstormed all of that and then thought, okay, well, from an experiential standpoint, he almost certainly needs me to be nice. He almost certainly needs me to show respect, not judge him, not embarrass him, allow him to save face and protect his self-image. He probably feels like he needs an excuse, something to blame his actions on. Mm -hmm. It's way easier for people to say I did or didn't do it than it is yeah. to say it was my fault. So let's not worry about the my fault yet. Let's mm -hmm. worry about the truth, what really happened. And so for me, just literally starting there helped me get my game plan in place. So with the actual person who was responsible for stealing the guns, when that conversation started and we built a little bit of rapport and he was talking about his wife and his kids and moving back and forth from Ohio to Florida and a business he previously had that went under. Now I can start putting mm -hmm. the specifics into that game plan because now I'm building within the universality of the human experience instead of just trying to be too specific right out of the gate. How do you get over, and sorry, cause I'm gonna pause it here before we get into number three, but Go. how do you get over, he has, a, he has a wife and he has kids and he had issues. Mm -hmm. How do you get him to be okay with the consequences because there are consequences of your actions. So if he sure. did what he did because he wanted to provide for his family and he was in his business and um, his previous business, like how do you get somebody to say, okay, I'm just, it was all for naught because now I'm going to get caught. Like, how do you get somebody to tell the truth when the well, consequences first, are, are really difficult? Yeah. Our mantra is focus on the issue, not the person, focus on the resolution, not the consequences. Mm -hmm. So we most certainly cannot go in there and make threats or we can't make false promises. Mm -hmm. We can't do anything like that. But really what we want to do is we want to be a step or two ahead, but really walk people through the mental gymnastics or the mental roller coaster that we know people are going to ride in that situation. So again, I get back to the universality of the human experience, but who among us 
hasn't made the decision we wish we could have back right. because of a motivating factor that was temporarily overwhelming our emotions or our focus. So again, without excusing the behavior or making it sound legal or making any promises, because all of those things would get me in trouble. So right. we're not going to cross that line, right. but just really highlighting again, the fact that we're all human beings. We all face pressures. We're not bad people and allowing him to justify that this is the day I am the person and this is the time it's okay to share this with literally because I'm the one who's treating them in a way that nobody else has treated them before. And for the previous organizations I worked with, we audio video recorded the vast majority Mm -hmm. of our interviews and interrogations and time after time, after time, after time, after time, after somewhere between when people started telling the truth and finished writing their written statement, they would thank us for mm-hmm. how we treated them during the conversation. Yeah. And that that's really what it is, is having a conversation with them in a way where it just feels like two respectful people talking. So now it's natural for them to say it because they're not focused on the conversation. Yeah, yeah, okay. So number three. Be patient, let the conversation come to you. Okay. Listening equals learning. If we're not listening, we're not learning. If I'm the one that's doing all the talking, I really can't be learning from the other person because I'm not giving them a chance. And there is a a large amount of research that shows when we're engaged in a conversation, we tend to start talking before we fully thought through everything we're going to say. So there's a reasonable likelihood that the highest value information in somebody's response is going to come later in their response. Oh, interesting. Because they're going and they're talking and thinking at the same time. So people like to be heard. They like to be respected. I mean, everything we've all been told since we Mm -hmm. were children, but be patient and let the conversation come to you. The more somebody talks, the more we learn. And having that patience really is the key to unlocking all this additional value that often we miss. Interesting. Just writing this down. Number four. So four and five really go hand in hand. Okay. With number four, Really what we're doing while we're letting the conversation come to us is we're evaluating the totality of everything we observe, verbal and nonverbal communication for indications of comfort and discomfort. Mm. The scientific community is clear. There is no single behavior that's always indicative of truth or deception. And any behavior we've ever been told that somebody does X when they're lying is false. (laughs) It's not always false. It's also not always true. Mm-hmm. Essentially, the behaviors that are most often associated with dishonesty are more often indications of discomfort. Okay. And the thought process is, well, when people lie, it makes them uncomfortable. Some people, I've met a lot of people that are really, really, really comfortable lying and don't show any discomfort at all. And honestly, we were talking a little bit geographically earlier. I got lucky. The, the, the most nervous person I've ever interviewed in my life was innocent. And I knew she was innocent when I got there. Hmm. She was somebody that I had to interview just to get some facts. She didn't work there when the incident happened. I literally just had to get some baseline info from her. So I fly down from Chicago. The VP of HR flies down from New York. We're in Miami. The VP of HR knocks on the door. Here comes the opening manager with a cup of coffee in her hand. She unlocks the door. I'm looking at her coffee going, she just got here. She opens the door and the VP of HR says, good morning. The surprise on the manager's face tells me she didn't know we were coming, red flag number one. And then the VP says, great to see you. This is Michael Reddington. He's a certified forensic interviewer and he has some questions for you this morning. 
on a scale of one to how not to start a conversation, that's how not to start a conversation. She literally was shaking, like holding both hands on her cup of coffee, shaking. When we went back to her office, she's a BU grad. So when I saw the picture, I literally talked Kenmore Square, Green Line, baseball traffic with her for yeah. about 30 minutes before I could calm her down and actually ask the questions. Yeah. So we don't want to assume truth or lie. As somebody is communicating with me, really what I want to do, if it's a high value conversation, really what I want to do is be in tuned to the totality of that communication, verbal and nonverbal. So as the comfort levels change, I can think to myself, whoa, Julie looked a little bit uncomfortable there. I wonder why. Oh, she looks a lot more comfortable there. I wonder why. And now within the context of the situation, I can have a really good idea on where your resistance might be, where your emotional shifts are. Mm -hmm. And now by understanding where and why your emotions are shifting, I can get to number five, which is I can adapt my behavior accordingly. I don't have to stay married to the strategy I brought mm -hmm. in. Now, based on the observations, I can tweak my plan a little bit. I can adapt. Maybe I continue pushing a little bit further. Maybe I back off. Maybe I change topics. Maybe I come back another day. We just suspend the conversation. <laughs> yeah. But now I can start changing gears in the middle of the conversation because of the observational intelligence I'm acquiring along the way. Interesting. So six. And we already mentioned this one too. We should be going out of our way to help people save face and protect their self-image. Literally, if people listen to this conversation and they take one thing out of it, we should be going into our high value conversations with an intentional effort not to make the people we're talking to feel embarrassed or judged. The single quickest thing that will get people to shut down or become defensive is if they feel any derivation of embarrassed, judged, demeaned, you pick the word but we should be going out of our way to help people save face, protect their self-image and avoid feeling judged. Hmm. How do you, how do you do that? I'm talking from like a personal, like how do you do, <laughs> like, how do, you do that if you got beef? Like if you, you just got shit to say, like, how do you do that? So, and this is something that I deal with all the time. The question becomes what's more important, saying the shit or getting the results? Hmm. Because often, just saying what I want to say in that moment in time might make me feel a lot better mm. while I make the situation a lot worse. Yeah. So it, that, like, it, it literally, we talk about situational awareness, talk about vision and influence again, but that's where stepping back and saying what's more important, me being my own hero in this conversation mm -hmm. or me creating the results that is really most valuable. So part of that is that ego check. And then from there, you know, I'll keep it quick. I'll be happy to expand if you want. Two general options. One is just being careful with our word choice. Questions can be perceived as invitations or attacks. A very simple example. If I say, Julie, did you do this? Mm -hmm. And it could be anything. Like, did you walk the dog? Did you, uh, you know, remember to call Sally? Like, it could literally be something mm -hmm. innocuous. But I say, did you do it? I'm looking to figure out, did you? You literally might take that as an accusation that you didn't do it. That I didn't do it. Like, what do, you what do you think? I didn't do it? <laughs> so questions can be perceived as invitations yeah. or attacks. So our word choice is very important. How we phrase questions, how we approach people is very important. Even our, like our body language, the distance we keep, all of these things can be very important. The other one, and this one tends to be counterintuitive for people, is embrace excuses. 
Okay. Were you, I'm a card-carrying, flag-waving, hill-defending believer in accountability. I swear it. But where and how we go for accountability is the big is the big consideration. I will make you a promise. It is much easier to get somebody to admit to doing or not doing something than it is to get them to say it's their fault. Mm-hmm. And it is exponentially easier to get them to say they did or didn't do something than it is to get them to admit to lying about it. Okay. If you want somebody to say, I did it, it's my fault, and I lied to you, get a hotel reservation. <laughs> it's going to be a while. Yeah. But if I can allow somebody to use an excuse, the excuse is the face-saving mechanism. Mm-hmm. we take it personal because it offends our moral code and they're not taking responsibility for their actions back up. If somebody gives you, if somebody says I did or didn't do it and here's why, and the excuse is BS, we get focused on the BS excuse when they just told us what we needed to hear. Mm-hmm. They literally just told us they did or didn't do it. Yeah. So allowing them to use the excuse to save face really is the key that unlocks a lot of this. So in that situation, if they say, I didn't do it, I'm sorry, because, and they give you an excuse, instead of attacking the excuse, which is what they probably expect Mm -hmm. you to do, instead say, thank you. I didn't realize that. Please tell me more. Walk me through. Help me understand. Mm -hmm. And now as they start unpacking that excuse, it inevitably is going to fall apart. And they're going to lead themselves towards that accountability we want them to take, as opposed to us forcing it on them. The other mechanism that we'll use is we'll give people excuses up front. So if I've got somebody who is behind on a project and I need them to tell me that they're behind on a project so I can figure out how to get the project done on time, I could say, Julie, are you going to get the project done on time? And you have two answers or two choices. Mm-hmm. You can lie to me and tell me yes to save face. Yeah. And then maybe you do, maybe you don't. Or you can say no and then entrench yourself into this position that it's not your fault, the deck is stacked against you, you didn't have what you needed. None of that's helping you. But instead, if I said, hey, Julie, I know we were excited when we took this project on, but it's been way more complicated than we thought. The customers had these last minute changes that we didn't plan for. We've had people out sick that we couldn't have anticipated. So this thing has not gone the way we planned. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you, with that, what resources do you need me to reallocate the most Mm -hmm. in order to make sure we get this done on time? Mm -hmm. So now literally this isn't about you anymore. It's about finishing the project. And I've given you excuses up front to say, you're right. The customer's making this hard. Johnny and Billy have been out sick and I really need you to give me ABC. Maybe I give them to you. Maybe I don't, but now you are comfortable enough telling me what you need. And I can make the best decision on how we're still going to get this thing done because I allowed you to save face during that conversation. Interesting. <laughs> I mean, I can immediately see that put to work in a corporate setting. So, yeah. I do. Th- I literally, it's a technique that I use sometimes much to my wife's chagrin, even personally as well. We're out purchasing vehicles. We are negotiating for services on our house. Um, I have a four-year-old son who is amazing, but he's a four-year-old. And sometimes I have to have conversations with his preschool teachers. I use it with his preschool teachers who may or may not listen to this at some point and be like, I can't believe that guy. Um, (laughs) He's using those interrogation techniques on me. Okay. We only have one core principle left. Follow up after the conversation. When we think about 
why we all struggle to be great listeners. There's two, I would contend, there's two big reasons. Number one, our brains aren't wired to make us good listeners. Our brains are literally wired to look for information that confirms what we already think and believe mm-hmm. and disregard information that contradicts what we already think yeah. and believe. We got about 175 biases lined up to make sure that process is streamlined. Also, the ubiquitous term for great listening since the 50s has been active listening. Mm-hmm. And active listening is great. We should do those things. It just leaves some opportunities. So I can smile, nod, maintain good eye contact, paraphrase, all while I'm ignoring you and thinking about how I feel, what I want to say next or something else going on yeah. in my day. So I'm not really listening. And I could paraphrase what you're saying to me now. So you feel like I'm listening. But if I never come back and re-engage with you, then this just vanished into the ether. And mm-hmm. it's not like I actually listened. So there's a big difference between trust and faith. People trust what they have tangible experience with, and they have faith in the things that they strongly believe, yet lack that tangible experience. Mm -hmm. So if we want somebody to trust us, we have to give them tangible experience. If we want someone to believe that we listened, at some point in time after the conversation, we need to reapproach them with something from that conversation. Mm -hmm. Maybe we made commitments, so we're following up to let them know where we are on ours. Maybe we have some additional ideas to support them, so we follow up. Or maybe an even better, more importantly, more effectively, remember something that was relatively innocuous in the conversation. Something that might have value to them, Mm -hmm. but really has no direct correlation to the main business reason, if you will, of the conversation. Mm -hmm. Next time you see him, ask him about that. So... Mm -hmm. Hey, I remember you saying that your dog wasn't feeling very well. How's he doing? Yeah. That that tells somebody, oh, if you cared enough to remember that little piece and you asked me again, then you must really be listening and you must really care about me. So now the value of that follow-up is so much stronger. What are the most important nonverbals to be looking out for? Great question. It's going to differ a bit person to person. It's going to differ a bit situation to situation. So one of the things, and I'm sure I'm not the only one that says this, if you ever hear somebody say, well, when you're reading body language, X always means Y, turn the channel. Because context is king. So in general terms, I'm looking for, like I mentioned before, for changes in their comfort level. But I'm looking for changes in their comfort level that deviate from what appears to be normal for them. Mm -hmm. So just as a basic example, I grew up in New England. I've been very fortunate to travel around the world. I live in the South now. Mm -hmm. So behavioral norms and expectations are different. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe a funny story. I'll do the super short version. My wife is originally from Alabama. And the first time I had Thanksgiving dinner with her family, I went to her after dinner. I'm like, I don't think your cousin really likes me. She looked at me and said, well, stop staring at him. I thought I was maintaining reasonable and respectful eye contact. Apparently it came across as I was staring creepily at the man. And I didn't mean that at all. That dude's a creeper. (laughs) So I'm going to get a little bit more specific, but remember really what we're looking for are shifts in somebody's comfort level that deviate from their normal course of behavior. And we're looking to time those deviations to some sort of trigger, you know, what's causing their behavior to change when a behavior changes is far more important than what behavior changes. That being said, here's a couple of general things I'll look for. If I, if we're sitting or standing and I can see their feet, are their feet pointed towards me or away from me? 
Now there's outliers to everything. So do they have a bad back? Do they have a foot injury? Like, so, but generally speaking, if somebody's feet are pointed towards me, they're more likely engaged with me. If their feet are pointed away, especially if they're pointed towards a door or someplace or someone else, mm -hmm. there's a reasonable likelihood that they're not as engaged with me. Same thing for somebody's shoulders. If their shoulders are parallel with mine, there's a reasonable chance that they're engaged. The more they start to turn their shoulders, the more there's a chance they're disengaged. But again, I've got a bad back. I shift in the seat all the time. So that's why context and timing and all of these things become so important. Um, one of the things that I will look for is if somebody is watching their hands do things. So if I'm having a conversation with you and I look down and watch myself play with my wedding ring, it doesn't mean that I'm lying at all. It could just be a, a nervous tick that I have or an OCD behavior that I have. Mm -hmm. But if I only do it on time to certain topics in the conversation, mm -hmm. that could be an indication to you that those topics are making me a little bit uncomfortable. So, you know, my playing with my water bottle, my playing with my watch, my wing, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. So watching the hands do something, again, doesn't mean they're lying. Let's make that clear. And if it's not a normal behavior for them, if it's happening on time, the stressful stimulus, that could be an indication as well. I'll touch on two myths super fast. Number one, there is no scientific link between breaking eye contact and lying at all. Zero, none. There's also no scientific link between which way somebody looks and whether or not they're lying. None, yeah. zero. All of that is false. The, another big myth that people are likely misled by is that when someone crosses their arms, they're likely defensive. That is not necessarily true at all. Mm -hmm. People generally will cross their arms for reasons of physical comfort or emotional vulnerability. They might be cold. They might have a bad back. It might be a comfortable way to stand. Yeah. Or emotionally, they might feel... I've literally, when I used to teach interrogation, I would have video clips of people crossing their arms right before they would confess. And when people, when the audience sees the arm cross, somebody would be like, "Ah, oh, you lost them. And I would hit the pause button and say, do you have your wallet on you? <laughs> because when they saw the arms cross, they didn't yeah. see both feet go flat on the floor. They didn't catch the giant exhale in the mm -hmm. nod of the head. So literally all the other behaviors, you're telling me this is capitulation, yeah. but it's a vulnerable moment. So they crossed their arms when they did it. Mm -hmm. so we get fixated on one behavior and we lose track of the rest. It's really that totality that we want to try to keep an eye on. So when somebody crosses their arms, we really want to ask ourselves, what did it happen on time to? And what does the face say? Okay. Did the air conditioner just kick on? They're probably cold. Did the creepy yeah. waiter just walk over? They're probably creeped out by the waiter. Mm -hmm. Did I ask them a financial question? And they crossed their arms and frowned and shook in their seat a little bit. Okay, that might have just made them a little bit defensive and uncomfortable. But it's the rest of those behaviors and contextual clues that give us the meaning, not just the crossing of the arms. I love these stories. Can we have, before, yeah, before we wrap up, can we have just one like super crazy investigative story? <laughs> Well, it depends on how you define super crazy. You define it. Um, I, I <laughs> there are a lot of people who listen to this podcast who are real fans of true crime. <laughs> true. Well, the good thing is there's no shortage of those shows available. There's no shortage. For them. And unfortunately, um, there's no shortage of true crime. <laughs> yeah, that is the bigger of the unfortunates for sure. I'm trying to come up with a different one than I used in the, in the session I taught this morning. 
I think for me, super crazy doesn't necessarily get back to, you know, what were they charged with? Well, there's a quarter million dollars of material missing. Okay, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, it's a cold murder case. Yeah, okay, that was pretty crazy. And, and people tend to get drawn into those. When those investigations basically go to plan, so to speak, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're not super crazy. You know, there's, right. there's skills, there's game plan, there's techniques out there. Those techniques are designed to work for a reason. So I'll do this one. For earlier on in my career, I had just gotten to a new organization. I was still new in position. It was literally my second week there. Um, I literally left work. And because I was still moving into my apartment, went out to get dinner on the way home. And the phone rings and says that they just apprehended three people for stealing. And they're holding them. These were employees. So I said, okay, I'll be back. Pay my tab, breath mint, back in the car, go. I get there and I review the footage. And unfortunately, they stopped the three individuals before they stole. Which means that my brand new team just essentially detained people who hadn't committed a crime. Mm -hmm. Now, they were going to steal. Like, there's no doubt about it. They were in the process of stealing. But instead of being patient and waiting for the act to take place, they jumped the gun. stopped it from happening, detained them anyway, and now have created some real liability for the organization. So I got a couple of choices to make. Choice A is to let all these three employees go back to work, document what happens, run it up the food chain and decide how are we going to handle this to to limit liability. Option two is double down. And for me, looking at the footage, there was no doubt. Like, there was absolutely no doubt what was about to happen. Had they waited 90 seconds, we'd be having a different conversation. So essentially, I interrogated three people in three different rooms all at the same time. Mm-hmm. I went from one room to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. And the, the technique that I used and taught the most really has five phases to it. Mm-hmm. So I just did one phase at a time as I bounced from each room to each room to each room. Mm-hmm. And over the process of the three conversations, I'd rather be lucky than good. All three confessed. All three confessed to more that we knew and we could document it. Mm-hmm. Um, all three snitched on the same coworkers. So I was able to, to build the case. And then after those three were informed that they could go home for the evening One of the people that they snitched on was working that night. I went and pulled him and sat him down and he ended up being the ringleader, which I hadn't anticipated. So his confession ended up being even more substantial. Do you work with corporations with the C-suite or with the managers to teach them these techniques to have better conversations um, and relationships with their employees? Thank you for asking. That is almost exclusively what I do at this point. Okay. So I work with the C-suite. I work with leadership teams. I work with sales teams and I work with HR teams. Those would okay. be the, the organizations that I work with the most to teach them how to apply these strategic and ethical observation skills to their conversations. So whether it is uh, educationally training programs or whether it's advisory one-on-work project work, those types of things, I do very, very, very little investigative work at this point. The vast majority of what I do is serve as an executive resource and provide those techniques to the C-suite and other business professionals. 
And so if people want to get in touch with you, what is the best way for them to reach out to you to work with their team? I appreciate you asking. Uh, if they want to learn more about the business, it's at inquasive.com, I-N-Q-U-A-S-I-V-E.com. Okay. If they're looking to learn more about me, it's michaelreddington.com. Okay. If they're looking to learn more about the book, it's disciplinedlistening.com. And if they'd like to connect with me on social media, really the only place to find me is LinkedIn at Michael Reddington CFI. And Perfect. I would be very happy that my email is all over the website. It's mreddington at inquiries.com. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd be more than happy to connect with any of your listeners, answer any questions that they have, and try to tie some of the things that we talked about pretty quickly in this conversation into the situations that they're dealing with in their professional or maybe even personal life. Perfect. So I'll put those four links into the show notes. I appreciate it. And this was fascinating. Thanks so much for being on. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Every time I talk with someone who is an expert in conversations, I literally feel like a shitty communicator. In listening to Michael, I kept thinking to myself, man, I miss half the shit that's going on in most of the conversations I'm having. Did anyone else feel that way? I guess one way we can combat this is to always be fully present and give our full attention to the person we're talking to. Like, full attention like watching their body language as well. I mean, how many of us conduct conversations while we're distracted by other things, not just in our physical space, like our phones and whatever's happening around us, but in our heads, like that shit that's going on in your head that you can't shut off. I'm 100% guilty of that. I wanted to keep talking to him, and maybe I'll have him back to talk more specifically about how he works with corporations. I'd dig that conversation, wouldn't you? Because this has been one of our longer conversations we've had on the podcast, I'm just going to hop skip right into the drink of the week. This week, the cocktail is called Easy Speak. Get it? It kind of ties in, right? Here's what you're going to need. Two ounces of bourbon, three-fourths ounce of chinar. That's spelled C-Y-N-A-R if you've ever seen that on the shelves at at the liquor store. It's a digestive Amaro invented in 1952. Chinar is flavored with 13 different herbs and spices, but it's most prominently artichoke. Isn't that weird? And even though it's predominantly artichoke, it's fairly sweet and low in alcohol. And because I'm married to an Italian, I, of course, have it in my bar. Moving right along. You're going to need a quarter ounce of simple syrup, three dashes of chocolate bitters, and one dash of aromatic bitters, and a twist of a lemon peel as a garnish. What we're going to do is we're going to combine all ingredients in a shaker add ice, stir, and strain into a chilled coupe or an old-fashioned glass. Uh, Rub that lemon peel around the rim of the cocktail glass and then dunk it in. Maybe you should also serve this over like one of those big, fun, large ice cubes. I have like the circle ones and I have the square ones, but I mean, you could just do it over regular ice if you wanted, but the big ones are so much fun. Anyways, that's it, friends. As always, thanks for being here. Don't forget to like, subscribe, share with your friends. And until next week, cheers. Thanks for taking the time to listen. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a tip. And remember, you can unapologetically be who you authentically are and still be wildly successful. That's a fact. See you next week on This Shit Works. This Shit Works.